give him dignity and honour. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I've given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so that he may serve me as priest. These are the garments they are to make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons so that they may serve me as priests. Make them use gold and blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen. That'll do for now. The rest of the instructions for the garments and kit is all there. So yesterday we focused on that basic structure of the universe. There's the living God before the universe began. Then there's the universe, the heavens and the earth united together as one single thing. Then sin, but a solution. We saw that. We focused on the throne of the Father at the centre of the highest heaven with the eternal Son, Jesus Christ, filled with the Spirit without measure, uh, coming into exile with us, which is that extraordinary truth there. And let's keep in our minds that vision of the highest heaven, the throne of the Father. As Jesus says, just come back to that before you do any praying. Because what we tend to do when we pray, perhaps, is go rabbiting on about how sinful we are and all our problems. And, and he says, whoa! He actually says, don't do that. You could, you, we can do that later in the prayer time. Yeah, but, yeah, but I'm bothered about it. He goes, yeah, I don't, it doesn't really matter whether you're bothered about it or not. This is what you need to actually focus on. This is what you actually need to focus on. Because if you're realistically going to actually know that your sins are forgiven and your problems dealt with, you need to get into your head the structure of reality and where things really matter and how they're dealt with. Then let's talk about daily bread and sins and things. And right at the end, let's worry about the evil one. It's a very different way. The, my instincts to prayer are different to that. I'm like, no, I'm going to start with my problems. It's like, no, no, don't do that. Father in heaven, the throne room, with this infinite stream of life, the uncreated life and light of our Father flowing out to the whole creation. And that vision, Revelation 4, the life of the Spirit flows out from the Father through the Son. And there's that emerald rainbow all around the throne in the highest heaven. And it's emerald because like in the Bible, well I say in the Bible, everywhere, green is the colour of life. And it's there in the, and it's as if there's just this explosion of life in the highest level of reality. And we start with that in our minds. Um, and that's important because our basic often question to a person is, isn't it? It's like, do you feel as if your life's draining away? As if you've just not got enough life? People are like, yeah. Yeah, I do actually. <laughs> I feel like I'm running on empty. I'm, I just haven't got, uh, yeah. Right. It's not because you've got too many carbs or you're not getting to the gym. It's not that. You can bolster yourself a little bit with that. But your life is actually draining away. You haven't got life. You've, it's like those flowers, isn't it? I, I kind of like cut flowers. I like them more than my wife. I don't know what... I, I, so she buys them for me sometimes. But, um, <laughs> so, but anyway... One, they, when you get them, they're beautiful, aren't they? Like, or a Christmas tree. There's one that's actually, let's use that one, because that's a bright, fresh in the mind. Your Christmas tree, it arrives, beautiful, full of life. Is it on January the 6th? Pine needles everywhere. Night, they're still finding them, aren't you, weeks later? Yeah. <laughs> they're everywhere. Why? Because the life's gone. It's cut off at the root, life's gone. It's an appearance of life, you can bolster it a bit, some water spray it, whatever, but it's dying, it's totally dying. That's human beings, from the moment we're conceived, actually. We have no life in ourselves, and any life there is, it is all from the Father, by the Spirit, through the Son, but 
sin and selfishness. It cuts us off from the life of God. And what we do instead of making our top priority, how can we get back to him, the fountain of life? Uh, What we do is we listen to our deceitful desires. And we turn in on ourselves and become ever more separated from the life of God. Our desires are called deceitful in the Bible because they promise us life. But they cannot deliver it to us. In fact, they drain us of it. They drain us of it even more. They accelerate the process. They tempt us to look for life in all the wrong places. Our deceitful desires make us think that food, alcohol, sex, shopping, money, privilege, power will give us life, box sets, whatever. And sometimes we're convinced, aren't we, if we could just get that thing, if I could have that experience, if I could have that relationship, if I could get that, then... Then my life begins, then. then. Life's always going to happen, isn't it? When something. And it never does. Because the deceitful desires tell us, no, no, you're nearly there. This year, if you achieve these goals, this year you'll get life. But it never happens. For a moment or a short time, they get the feeling of life and energy, the buzz of achievement the thrill of desire and attraction, the chemical rush of passion, whatever. And then it's gone and we need more and it doesn't give us life. It's drained a little bit more away. That's life. Everyone knows it. People will admit to it, talk about it if you get down to that. How can we actually be human beings who have life? How do we get to live life instead of seeking for it and trying to hoard it? Well, we need atonement to be restored, to be at one with the fountain of life. That's what we need. We need to, like that little book, the Warren Wearsby book, we need to abide in Jesus, the true vine, so that the life of the vine will flow back into us. Then we can bear fruit, much fruit, Daily filled with the spirit of life rather than the other kinds of spirit that are too tempting. So what we're going to do is just take a few minutes now to appreciate why we need Jesus to give us life. Why we need to abide in him if we're going to be filled with the spirit who is life. We're going to look at Jesus as the great high priest of all creation. So we thought yesterday how the tabernacle building was this model of the heavens and the earth. When it was built, Moses was then given further instructions what to do with it. That's the book of Leviticus, really. It's a book about sacrifices and a high priest. The tabernacle showed what the problem was. The heavens and the earth were supposed to be united together, life flowing out to all things. Us. But a curtain was hung to divide the tabernacle into two parts, the inner heavenly and the outer room. And on that curtain were embroidered cherubim, angels, representing, of course, really that Genesis 3 angels with flaming swords that prevent us ever getting back to the source of life on our own terms. And that's what the Lord said, you cannot... You cannot have access to life now as you are. No, out. In ourselves, in our sinful and selfish mess, we are not safe. We're just not safe to be in the throne room of heaven. We cannot safely drink us from the river of life as dying, dirty deceitful rebels full of darkness and disease. We are not safe to be near that source of life, to pollute it at the source. We are dangerous, dirty. We cannot be allowed to live forever as polluting predators. That's what we are. We are predators. We are dangerous creatures. Someone I, this week said, they said, um, 
was talking about killing. And they said, oh, what a horrible thought that anyone could kill somebody. I said, we all can. We all can. Easily. I remember there's a part of the world that fell into civil war in the 90s. And someone said to me, oh, I, they said, I go on holiday, the year before, they said, go on holiday there, everybody's absolutely lovely, absolutely lovely. And then this happened, they said, how is that possible? I said, that will happen, everybody's capable of killing everybody, just given the right, of course, that's what we are, we are polluting predators. We're not, we know we're not safe with each other. That's why we have safeguarding and all sorts of things. We're concerned about the police. We're concerned about, because we know we're not safe. <laughs> That's why the Lord God says, no, no. Not in here. Not you like that. You cannot live forever. As Freddie Mercury said, who wants to live forever if we're like this? He knew it. You can't just exist forever in this ghastly condition. It's unbearable. That is hell. To live, to exist. No life, but to exist forever. Separated from the life of God. Stuck with our gnawing desires. So the angelic fire keeps us out. The fire of God policed by cherubim. And of course, those sons, Aaron's sons, two sets of sons, were to be apprentice high priests. It's all there. They were to even begin to have their own set of the clothes, the high priest clothes, in order, because they were being apprenticed, to take on this role that their dad had of the high priest. But Nadab and Abihu, those two, Do you remember what happened? Leviticus 10. They did not take all that seriously that we've just talked about. They tried to approach the living God in their own way. And it doesn't even specify how they did that, what they did. Possibly they got drunk. Possibly, who knows? The point is they were not careful about this barrier and believed that they were, they're okay. And they were consumed by that fire. It came upon them and burned them. That deadly fire, that barrier, that curtain imposed its presence, made its presence felt, and Nadab and Abihu felt it. In number 16, you remember Korah, he was with his friends. They also said, hey, what's all this mediation stuff? We don't need a mediator. Anyone can just plug into God. We're all equally full of God. We'll just plug straight in. Anyone can. Why do you think you need a mediator? Why do you think there's need for some sort of intercession? Anyone can get into God. People talk like that all the time now. That's a common assumption. So the Lord said, okay, right, Korah. I would advise everybody to back away from Korah right now. That was the advice, if you remember. Health and safety. (laughs) Say, stay right back. And I'm going to invite Cora and his associates to bring their incense burners. And we thought about incense is that sense of church coming into the very life of God. He says, now then, let them, they, I welcome, right, go, plug yourself into the life of God without a mediator. They were swallowed alive down to Hades. That's what happens when you're trying to plug into the life of God. When you try to ignore the curtain, you can't plug into the life of God. We're just disgusting. We're disgusting to the life of God. Rightly swallowed alive at the thought of such a thing. It's disgusting to imagine human beings doing such a thing. Well, can there be a safe way through the fire back into the fountain of life? Can there be a way through? Well, when Moses met Jesus at the burning bush, what did he see? He saw the angel of the Lord in a bush that was burning on the mountain of God. It's called the mountain of God, and that's like raises all sorts of thoughts. Why was it called such a thing? I don't know. But 
He sees this, the angel of the Lord, in a, and why does he go over to investigate it? Do you remember why? Because the bush wasn't consumed by the fire. That's why. So it's as if there's something about this mountain of God that represented this sort of heavenly reality. And he sees the fire burning, and he's like, that's the fire you can't get through. It's that's the fire that consumes, kind of symbolically. That's the fire that consumes. But well, he's in it, and it, it doesn't consume where he is. Who is this that where he is, this fire does not consume. And it's a dry bush in a desert place. I mean, look at Australia now and all that. This should have been going up like a firework. And he looks at The bush isn't burning. But this is the fire. This is the fire that really burns. Why doesn't it burn when he's there? I must find out who he is. Let me go see. And the whole of the rest of Exodus and Leviticus is understanding why that is what happens in chapter 3. Why the fire does not consume where this one is. How can Jesus make it safe? How can he make it so the fire does not consume us? We could spend time looking at the sacrifices in Leviticus and we might try and do that tomorrow. But today we're going to focus just on the high priest, the person who administered the sacrifices and offerings. The high priest was the one mediator. The one mediator in this setup. See, there's only one mediator in the tabernacle setup. It's really important to grasp that. Because sometimes, I mean, I used to think, oh, there's loads of mediators and priests, loads of them. Like a whole tribe of them. There isn't. There's only one mediator in that system. One person who can go into the heavenly reality. There's only one who actually goes into the heavenly reality. The high priest, once a year, at the cost of blood. There's only one mediator. So that's why when Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is only one mediator. The man Christ Jesus, you know. If we didn't give the Berean test to him, we said, hang on. Was that in the Bible? What would he have said? Because every, he's got to prove everything, hasn't he? That's the Berean test. He can't, we can't, even if it's the apostles, we can't go, oh, I believe it because he's an apostle. He'd have gone, no, don't believe it because I'm an apostle. You've got to know it from scripture, wouldn't he? So what would he have said? How would he have proved that? Well, he would have gone, well, because there's only ever one mediator in the setup. There is only one figure in that entire ancient church setup who was able to go between heaven and earth. Only one. And anyone else who attempted it perished. So, the book of Leviticus goes into the hows of it a little bit more. But we are just going to spend a few minutes looking at this role of the high priest designed to show off this angel of the Lord, the, 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 the high priest over all, the divine high priest. The priest of God most high. So, Aaron had to put on what we could call a superhero outfit. Think of it like that, because you know what it's like where a little kid puts on like a Spider-Man outfit or Wonder Woman or whatever, and when they're wearing it, they'll, they think they're like, I've got the powers. Like, <laughs> firing web, Superman, the lasso of truth, whatever it is. And they, they act as if they've got, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, okay, so yes. Everyone's like, no. <laughs> well, that's how I behave when I put my superhero out there. <laughs> no, okay, you get the idea. That is the best way of understanding Euron with this outfit. It's a superhero outfit of, of the only real superhero in all the universe. All these superhero stories, the aspiring that there is this sun who will come down from extraterrestrial and save us, Superman or whatever. They're all about theology, aren't they? They are. They're all about theological desires. 
And the desire that, oh, out there, in a galaxy far away, you know, there's an empire in the heavens. Oh, actually, that's maybe a bad thing, but um, depending what view you take of Star Wars. Um, there's a, anyway, that's a whole other subject. Look, forget that. It's like a superhero outfit. And it says, make a superhero outfit, because he's going to play a role. He's going to pretend to be the hero, the champion of heaven and earth. And to do that, he needs to put on this outfit. Because in himself, he is not that. Aaron, oh man, he ate that. Like the golden calf incident. Moses, wait for a bit. What should we do? Tell you what, why don't we worship the devil? Uh, no. <laughs> and then even, because he actually makes the golden calf. You remember a calf, a bull, that's like a cherubim, according to Ezekiel. So it's, it is the worship of like a cherubim. And we think, not just any cherubim, who's, who is going to take advantage? There's only one who's going to take advantage of that situation like that. And why it becomes this absolute moment that the rest of the Bible looks back to and says, they did that! And, but when, when Moses says, Aaron, how's this happened? He goes, I don't know, I just put the gold in the fire and out pop this! You liar! Liar! You made it! You made it! Do you see what I mean? So he... He's not got all these qualities in himself. But it actually says he, must, he should put it on, it says, um, in order to give him dignity and honour. <laughs> give him it. Because he ain't got that. None of us have. But he, when he wears it, he can play the role of somebody who has tons of it. So he does. And we'll think about these different powers and qualities manifested in the superhero outfit. Uh, how would they select... There's that interesting bit that comes up in number 17. It's at the Cora thing, when Cora's like saying, we don't need a mediator. And then there's this thing about selecting Euron as the high priest, right? Just think about that for a minute. I find that a very powerful incident because the Lord said, pick the best person from every tribe. Pick your leader. So there's 12 tribes. um, If there's like 2 to 3 million people, on average, let's say it's the best person out of 200,000 people. uh, Let's say. So it's going to be a fairly impressive person. Pick your best human being that you can find. Let them come and let them find a dead, dry stick in the desert and bring it and I'll pick Aaron says the Lord I'll have him and everyone's like well he's not going to be able to it doesn't matter that's my choice I'm having Aaron he can bring his stick as well now the rest of you the best that humanity's got to offer come with the dead now what your task is the challenge is this can you get life from the fountain of life and give it to this stick can you do it? The best that humanity's got to offer. Can you get life and give it to something that's dead? All right? They put their sticks in. No. The best that humanity's got cannot get life from the fountain of God, from the heavenly... Because remember, the sticks are to be put into the inner room, the, heaven, the most holy place, as if to say, now then, there you go. Can you draw life from there? No. Aaron's, isn't it? It explodes into life. Flowers, buds, almonds. An unbelievable thing. Why? It's in number 17. It's um, the role he's playing. He's playing the role. The message is obvious. He's playing the role of somebody who can give life to the dead. And if you feel dead and dry, don't think the best of humanity can help you. It can't. But this one, not Aaron, but the role he's playing, Jesus, he can give you life without limit and give you fruit even as dead and dry as you can ever imagine you are. That's, that's wonderful truth. That's why he did it that way. 
And the other one, while we're at it, Aaron, it's in the same sort of number 17. Or is it the end of number 16? The, 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 the God says, he, he judges them. And that wave of death is rolling across the camp. And Aaron, wearing the Jesus outfit, stands in the face of this cloud of death. And it can't get past him. He's so full of life in that role that death cannot overcome him. Anyone who took refuge and said, I must get behind the Aaron. Aaron's pointing me to the one who's full of life. Let me hide behind him. Safe. Alive. Anyone who said, no, I'm alright. I won't be touched. Dead. Only those who sheltered behind Aaron lived. Very powerful. Well, let's just think then a little bit more then about this. Uh, Aaron was selected from, it says there in Exodus 28, let Aaron, your brother, be brought to you from among the Israelites. He's just a regular guy, as we thought, a sinful man, like everybody else. But he represented the great high priest, the source of all life and light, logic and love. He's just one of them, human being. And he dressed up as Christ. But he does it as a normal man with his family. You'll remember that his tent was to be pitched right by the tabernacle entrance. Think about what that would have been like practically. People coming to the tabernacle for all sorts of reasons. He's the... It's his family life. It's a tent. People hear what's going on. He's having a row. Get, are you locked not up yet? Get out of bed. You know, and all this sort of thing. They went, oh, Aaron, he's a very normal man. <laughs> he's having the domestic life spilling out. That's for a reason. So people, oh, he's a regular guy. He eats and has all the problems of life. And he's sometimes ill and all that. Why? So they know he's one of them. When they go through and then Erzeron's tent, oh, he's one of us. And then they go and see him in this role. But they know he's one of them. He's absolutely one of them. See, the Lord could have said, now I want to show, I'm going to show off Christ to you in this role as the high priest of all creation. So I think I'd best get an angel to do this. I'm going to get one of the four living creatures who have four faces and wings and they're full of eyes all around and then then you will appreciate the nature of this one could have done that but no angel can play the role of the great high priest because he isn't one he isn't one of those it's very important that it was played by a real human being one of the church family because he is He is. It's not to angels that he gives aid. It's us. You know that thing in Ezekiel chapter, I'm speaking of the living creatures. I love those four living creatures. They're a little obsession. Because they're full of eyes. You know Daniel calls them the watchers. Well, I suppose that's your inevitable nickname, isn't it? If you're full of eyes. (laughs) Oh, watchers. Um, So that's Daniel's nickname for them. They're very impressive, aren't they? They're in Revelation. And then Ezekiel sees them in that stunning vision into heavenly reality that comes there. And as he's trying to describe these, because there's the first heaven, the atmosphere, clouds, birds. The second heaven, where Star Wars takes place, the galaxies. And we're like, whoa, that's that's the biggest scale of reality imaginable. And our atheists then stick that. And we're like, oh, wait till you know about the third heaven. The paradise of God. Beyond, if you think that, the second, people say the second one's hard to describe. Wait till they try and describe the third one. Well, Ezekiel tries. It's very hard. It's hard to follow what he's talking about. Uh, this glorious throne of heaven with fire and lightning and wheels and creatures that are like, whoa, what's going on? But at the very centre of it all, one like a son of man. 
It's, a, it's, a, it's like a human being. So it's in all the, like, oh, I can't make sense of it. It's too much to... Oh, but there's like a human being there. It's like as if there's one of us at the centre of everything. Isn't that weird? Like at the very centre of all the weird angelic mysteries. It's like, I think that's one of us. That's Ezekiel's thing. It's like, wow. What a thought. He appears in this human form throughout the Old Testament, of course, because he wanted them to know he was with them and for them, and he's determined, all the way through the Old Testament, to become one of us forever. And then then when Jacob wrestles with that man who is God in Genesis 32, it's clear what he's going to do, what he's up to. That's what he's going to do. He's going to be one of us, fully and completely, forever. He's not only filled with all the fullness of God, but he's filled with our life too, just as much. And even now, in the highest heaven, surrounded by hundreds of millions of angels, and that scene in Revelation, there is one of us sitting on the throne who's got a pair of these eyes, literally, human eyes, like just like these. Because when in resurrection, he's not got different eyes. He's not got like huge eyes or something. He's just like, just still a regular human being in the resurrection and eats a fish breakfast and stuff. That's who is at the centre of reality. Someone who's got, literally knows what it's like to have these sorts of eyes and these sorts of ears. And he, he, when people speak to him, he hears with ears, human ears, that's the facts, isn't it? And you think, I know we're all like, no, yeah. That's what the Bible says. He has hands, feels with his heart. In all our experiences of human life, Jesus Christ has the same experiences. Hebrews 2.14, he's been through it all. He knows what it's like. It's incredibly profound. But he's not like us in one very important way. We keep on making a mess of being a human being. But he always lives human life as it's supposed to be lived and always has. Too often when we try to help other people, we're in as big a mess as they are. We're sinking in the mud as fast as they are. And we're trying to pull them out and we're both going down because we're both messed up. But Jesus is our friend and he's one of us. He knows just what it's like to be in the mess we're in. But he's on the solid rock. He is like this solid rock. And he can pull us out of the mud without going down into it. That's in Hebrews 2. Hebrews, no, Hebrews chapter 5 verses 14 to 16. Like us in every way but not sinful. So he can get hold of us and pull us out without being pulled in. Because we so easily get pulled in. So in Exodus 28, 36 to 38, the high priest wore a turban with a sign on it that just says, Holy to the Lord! Those, they, that that um, Aaron, he was wearing something that was saying, This great high priest is utterly, utterly dedicated to his job as saviour, totally pure and holy in all he does and thinks and feels and says. He'll never let us down because he's in some mess of his own. He's never going to be all messed up himself. He's always available. Always dedicated. He also... Just a small footnote there. Um, He had to be a perfect physical example uh, of bodily... Do you remember those rules about the high priest? He had to be uh, fully intact and capable physically in every way. Now, sometimes people will get trouble with that, saying, well, why is he like that? Is that not alienating if you're, say, suffering from a disability... And you look and how you can... Well, that's not the point. The point of that image is that he represents what human life is supposed to be in a way. And the recognition is that is what we will all be like 
when we are with him in glory, when he appears in glory. He is representing that. It's that thing that's in Philippians 3.21. In all the physical weakness and imperfection, the ancient church could could think of the perfect body of the high priest and remember that one day the great high priest, the Lord Jesus, will make all our bodies like his glorious body. That was why that's there. It's just so that we could look and go, one day... Even this, my wrecked body, be like his glorious body. I always think as well, let's think about another thing, that these stones, remember it's just, it ha, he had stones on his shoulder. It's the, uh, the ephod. Uh, in, if you've still got Exodus 28 open, you'll see from verse 9, there's two stones. And... Uh, he would carry these stones on his shoulder, one on each shoulder, with on them inscribed the, the names of the church, the, the people of the church, the ancient church. Why on his shoulders? That's where our strength is, our capacity to bear weight. A fire can sweep for a house in minutes, can't it? But it's not the fire that kills people. It's the smoke, isn't it, that's the most dangerous thing. Really quickly, you're gone because of the smoke. And if we breathe in that thick smoke, we're powerless and unconscious in moments. And when the smoke has overwhelmed us and the fire is coming towards us, what do we need? We need a fireman. Who? What will the fireman do? He'll come in, maybe, <laughs> hopefully, puts you over his shoulder, gets you out, carries you out, because you can't get yourself out. That's what that's about. Jesus, the high priest, carries us on his shoulders. We're too weak and messed up to find our way to safety. Even if we've got the best instructions, this is how to get yourself out of the burning building when you're overwhelmed by smoke. Oh, you're not listening, you're unconscious. Ah, it's rubbish. The instructions are no use. We need the person to come in and carry us out. How could, or if it was, how can, here's the instructions. Here's how to get through the barrier of, the fiery barrier of heaven to go into the most holy place where the fountain of life is. What you need to do is have pure hands and a clean heart and you only ever meditate on scripture day and night. That's what you need to do. Oh, ah, so I'm not going to make it then, am I? But he will put you on his shoulder. He has pure hands. He's got a clean heart. He only meditates on his word. He never listens to bad advice. Here you go, on the shoulder. Let's go. That's what it's a lovely image that you could look at that high priest. And on his shoulder, stones. Onyx stones, bright orange, brown probably, with the names of the church members on. And on that day when he would go into the most holy place, you could sort of feel, I'm going in. I'm with him. He's carrying me in. He's carrying me in. In a way, I'm in there. I get to go in. Beautiful. And then over his heart... He had this special breastplate with gems on, also inscribed with the church members. And in that powerful symbol, isn't it? It's over his heart. He's not carrying us because he has to. Do I have to carry you lot again? You're such a drag. (laughs) That's what we get a bit like, supporting people. He's He's a joy. His names are over his heart. He loves us. He's like, see, I keep you over my heart because I love you. It's not a duty, it's a joy to carry you. I want you with me, as close to me as possibly it's possible to be. Just on that, on the materials, because it's gemstones that he uses over his heart. These precious, precious gems. Because he could have said, I'll I'll write it on paper. No! No! On gems, because you're precious to me. 
And in the same way, do you remember the materials? The Ark of the Covenant's made of gold, the table of presents, gold, the olive lampstand, gold. The only other thing that's really gold, the altar of incense. As if he says, it's like you share my very nature. You do. You're that precious to me. So, he carries us in with love, and that's how we have that's how we have such confidence in prayer. We're carried in that way. We have absolute confidence in prayer that we do have access and we are heard. And he always thinks about us and loves us. The high priest was only allowed to marry a perfect virgin wife, Leviticus twenty one, thirteen to fifteen. Why? And she had to be from the church family, godly, like that. Why? That wasn't applied to other people. Why him? Well, it was again to remind the whole ancient church that when the great high priest, because they all know in the ancient world that this is about him marrying us. We're thinking the book of Hosea, Song of Songs. Even right from the beginning when Paul says, oh yeah, that Adam and Eve thing, that's really Christ in the church. That's what, that's what that's about. It's about, so who the high priest marries matters. Because it's like, well, who does he marry? Because that's about who the living God's going to marry. And he marries someone without spot or blemish. And that's telling us we will be like that on the great wedding day without spot or blemish. Every shameful sin, unclean desire, gone, Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Our great high priest lifts us up, takes us in, cleanses us, presents us without spot or blemish to be married, fit to be married to the living God in the highest heaven. That is something that's hard to grasp, isn't it? How is that going to happen? There's a picture there. Another thing, I know we've not got long. The smell of oil of life. That was around the high priest the whole time. Oil, a major part of life. He'd have had more contact with oil than a car mechanic. Um, Because everything about him is covered in oil. You know when we talked about prophets, priests and kings? Uh... When, the, when Samuel anoints uh, David, it's a little hip flask of oil. Bloop. little bit. Probably Elijah's the same with for Elisha. When it's the, an, an ordination of the high priest, it's a bucketful. It's literally gallon. You know, it's like a big container full. It's that. Now, the embroiderers who just made the outfit probably were like, dude, that's going to be at the dry cleaners every day for a month. But, <laughs> it's, but it is, it's literally a bucket full, and it's just, and he's just like, oh. It, so if to an ancient church person you said, oh, the anointed one, they're not thinking about prophets and kings. They're really thinking of him, the high priest. That's the anointed one. It's just ridiculous about it. It's like, and that's why the Psalm 133, Aaron's head, all the oil gushing down the beard onto the body. That's the image. Beautiful. Fragrant oil. The smell hangs around. It's Leviticus 8, 10 to 12. Even the bread he ate was to be all mixed up with oil. Everything about him is oil-based And we saw that yesterday. That's because it's about the Holy Spirit without measure. This job above all jobs must be done with the one who's filled, just absolutely drenched in the Spirit. This job of fixing the universe, cleansing human beings, washing us, making us ready to be married to the living God. This requires the Spirit without measure. Drenched. Psalm 104, verse 15, says, Oil makes our faces shine, like with life. And we all have, I don't know if you, I don't know whether everyone here is heavily into using moisturizers and things, but uh, I sometimes have to, actually. But um, 
Well, yeah, it's just true today. People use oil just to, you know, anointing ourselves with oil to make us look alive. All that sort of thing. It's there in the psalm. Because that's it. It's the sign of life. And the light in the tabernacle from the oil burning. Light and life. Without oil, lifeless, tasteless darkness. Without the spirit, lifeless, tasteless darkness. And so there he was, the high priest, dripping with the smell of life. The flavour. The light of life. And as we saw, when that high priest, Aaron, drenched with the oil of life, could stand and death could not get past him. Because he's the one full of life without measure in that outfit. He stood, it says, between the living and the dead. And the plague stopped. What a picture of Jesus Christ. And that way in which he is so full of this life and connecting all the life of heaven and earth. Jacob has that dream, doesn't he, in Genesis 28, 10 to 19, where he sees this sort of ladder way between heaven and earth and the Lord himself standing upon it, really as the one who makes it all possible, this flow of life and business between heaven and earth. And Jesus refers to it in John 1, doesn't he? What if you were to see me? And all the angels coming and going upon me. That's this image. He's the great high priest. And all the life and business of reality channels through him. And when Jacob woke up from that, he poured oil out all over that stone. Do you remember that? As if to go, here, I get what life's about. Now I get life in a new way. Have we got just a moment? How have we got? Is it 11 o'clock finish? Is it? Does anyone know? It is, isn't it? I thought that, yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, he wore a blue robe, Exodus 28, 31. The, well, let's not say anything about that. Let's just think about the hem. The hem of his robe, bells and pomegranates. We all, we're, we're immediately on the alert to the hem because in the Gospels that lady knew, ah, here he is the high priest of all creation. I need only touch his hem and then life will be given to me and I'll be healed. She knew that. She was thinking of Exodus 28, uh, 33 to 35 with the pomegranates and the bells. Pomegranates, why? They are full of life. They can have more than a thousand seeds, potent symbol of fertility and fruitfulness in the Bible. In the Song of Solomon... Chapter 4, 13, 6, 11, 7, 12, 8, 2. It's all over in the Song of Songs. This sense it's a potent symbol of a fertility and life. And then, of course, when the spies went into the promised land, they came back pomegranates. Here we are. Seeds. <laughs> and so with all that in mind, it's like, let's get some pomegranates on the high priest's robe. Because then life, fertility, and bells... That sound of the loud, the metal on metal sound, ting, the, the, the sound of the loud symbol in the congregation on worship, 2 Samuel 6, 5, 1 Chronicles 13, it comes at the end of the book of Psalms, doesn't it? Psalm 155 to 6, praise him with the clash of symbols, metal on metal, ting, that sort of bright, clear sound of victory, of judgment, of triumph. Praise him with the loud symbols, the resounding symbol. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. It ends so climactically. And uh, that sense of the, that, that clashing sound at, the, at Jericho also. And that, well, yeah, that'll do. Look, every time he moved about, that sound of the bells, the metal on metal, metal, on metal clear sound, they could hear him. And it's a confident sound. And it calls us to worship. That's why churches ring bells. Historically, that sense of the loud, clear sound of metal on metal. Victory, hope, confidence. Leading the church in a fruitful act of worship to the glory of God. 
Well, um, I won't say anything about that. I'm just going to make one last thing, and then it's done, is this. Once a year, that high priest would do the job of the mediator and go into the heavenly room with the cost of blood, and he would take that blood into the most holy place with the incense cloud with him. So much to say, mustn't do it now. But you're thinking it all, I know. You're all Bible people. Um, But think of this. What was going on? It said he was making atonement for the people and principally on that day for the tabernacle. Making atonement for the tabernacle, it says. Think about that. The tabernacle, what does it represent? The heavens and the earth. It represents the entire creation and everything in it. And on this day... He goes in to make atonement for the people secondarily, but the primary work is to make atonement for the tabernacle. In other words, he symbolically, Aaron, goes into that inner room with this blood of the perfect sacrifice in order to cleanse the universe. Yeah? In order to make atonement for the universe, the heavens and the earth. And then he goes in and is hidden from the sight. And then it says, the rest of the congregation is to wait. No priestly work, it said, is to be done while he is in. Wait. And then he re-emerges and comes back out. That's where we are. The high priest. He has taken the blood in to make atonement for the whole creation. He's Fit his job, the day, this work of the mediator to go into the heavenly realm is to cleanse the entire universe so that the curtain is gone, so that death, disease, uncleanness, wickedness, selfishness is gone forever. We wait in that moment as it is in that chapter. We are waiting. He's in. He's going to re-emerge. And no priestly work is to be done while he is in. What more is there to be done? If we were to attempt any such work, we're saying what he's done isn't adequate. No, we wait. And then when he appears, the great high priest over all creation, that atonement will appear. And the whole creation, the heavens and the earth, will become the new heavens and the new earth, the home of righteousness forever and ever. Amen.